Well, good morning, church. Uh, if you have your Bibles, let's open up to the book of 1 Samuel. And uh, we find ourselves this morning in chapter 23. We are uh, kind of working our way. We're almost done uh, with the book. We can sort of see the, the end uh, in, in sight, if you will, and getting ready to transition into a few other things. Uh, this morning, we're going to sort of blow past a couple of chapters. And I want to tell you why we're doing that. It's not because there's not useful, helpful things in there. It's just when you start to read through books of the Bible, you start to see the same themes that sort of emerge chapter by chapter. And so you kind of want to make sure that you're not redundant uh, at the same time, just walking through and, and seeing. As you're finding your place uh, in chapter 23, uh, to be honest with you, this week, I didn't think I was going to be here today. Uh, it was a little bit uh, touch and go beginning this week. And, uh, and the reason is, is because something that happened to me on a Monday evening, some of you guys know this, that I'm a, uh, an avid beekeeper and it's sort of a novice beekeeper. I, I know enough to be really dangerous about keeping bees. Um, found out later as I got into beekeeping that I'm highly allergic to bees in the process and learned that sort of the hard way about a year ago, right when COVID happened and I uh, got stung like right in the jugular and uh, put me down for about 10 days, uh, neck sort of inflamed and swelled up. Well, uh, in my neighborhood, there are uh, a couple of beekeepers, some that have left and moved, but then some that have like uh, evangelized some other people in my neighborhood to become beekeepers as well. It's essentially what happens. And uh, Monday night, Haley and I were doing our normal thing. We get out and we go walk and we try to walk three to four miles and it's just sort of quality time for the two of us. And so we get to talk and process. We literally just spent about 45 minutes talking about how we were going to navigate this week because all of our kids were starting school and Haley's car, her minivan, uh, was scheduled to go into the body shop. And so we were trying to figure out how we were going to work our schedules and uh, take five kids to school to and from, go to work, uh, entertain at our house on Tuesday night and Wednesday night, uh, not to mention things for the weekend. And so we spent about 40 minutes figuring this out. And no sooner than we figured that out, my neighbor, Saad, who lives about six or seven houses down, who is a practicing Muslim, great guy, great family, needs to know the Lord, but he has gotten into beekeeping. But Saad, and he would tell you this if he was here today, he doesn't know squat about bees. And so he sees me, he's like, hey, come over here, I've got a problem. I had three hives, two of my hives have just left, they swarmed. And bees will do that for a couple of different reasons. And so I was there talking to Saad and we were talking about why bees swarm and, and what do you have to do as a beekeeper to take care of them. He said, my center hive, I think the bees are gone, but there's like seven or eight bees sort of hanging out on the outside. I said, well, let's open them up. And so I'm standing about as here uh, from here to that speaker and we have no protective gear on or anything. And you could tell that the bees were gone. So I sort of lifted it up. I was like, hey, Saad, you got bees in there. There are definitely bees in there. So we start talking. And so I offered to come over this weekend. I said, I'll come over this weekend. We'll move this high from this really small box. We'll put it in a larger box. And I'll come this weekend. He said, okay. So he asked me a few more questions. I said, well, let's check your, your hive one more time because they seem pretty mild-mannered. And so I go back over to the box, raise the box up. No sooner than I raise the box. All of these bees that were just madder than you know what come emerging out of the box. My wife just leaves me stranded. <laughs> Sod offers no support. He flees. And before I know it, within a matter of like five seconds, I'd been stung twice on the back of the leg, twice in the hand, and then again right in the jugular. And so I politely tell Saw, I was like, hey, listen, I got to go. I'll holler at you later this weekend. Uh, looked at Haley and I was like, we, we got to, we're like a mile away. We got to run home. 
and my throat starts closing up, my hands start swelling, and all of a sudden I'm like, I'm in like big trouble. Call my doctor, uh, get on a, a, a cortisone, uh, prednisone regimen, steroids, and I'm fine. And before uh, you decide to come up to me after the service and say, Drew, isn't it, don't you have an EpiPen? No, I do not. Drew, you're allergic to bees. Should you probably give your bees up? No, I will not, all right? You don't tell me how to live my life, and I won't tell you how to live your life, okay? This is my thing, even though I'm highly allergic. Now listen, it's one thing to, in the midst of trying to create gospel conversations with neighbors and friends, it's one thing to experience persecution and suffering when it comes to bee stings, which is sort of a funny, almost sort of tertiary kind of type thing. But what if we're in situations that are not necessarily situations where we're being afflicted by bees or we're laboring in some ways or we're experiencing conflict? What we have in the book of 1 Samuel in chapter 23 today is we have David who is fleeing for his life from a murderous and vindictive king who wants nothing more than to just take David's life. He's hurled spears at him. He has sent men after him trying to murder him. And here you have David in the broader context of 1 Samuel that has done nothing but honor the Lord and give praise to Saul because he recognizes that God is the one that has put Saul in his position of authority. And in chapter 23, David finds himself on the run. He was in some caves in chapters 21 and 22. There was some narrative going on about Saul killing some priests and doing some bad things. And what I want us to do is I want us to pick up beginning in chapter 23 of verse 1 and listen to the word of the Lord for us this morning. And the text says this. So they told David, David's men and his supporters, behold, the Philistines are fighting, are fighting against a group of people called Kilah. Now, the Philistines, if you remember, Goliath was a Philistine. These were vicious, murderous, warmongering people that did not take any captives. They would set houses on fire and plumage everything in sight. And so here they are trying to fight against Kilah and robbing the threshing floors because it was harvest time. So the people of Kilah had done all the work in the farming and the agriculture. They were there reaping the reward of the harvest and the Philistines knew this. And so they tried to plunder the people of Kilah. Therefore, verse two, it says, David inquired of the Lord, shall I go and attack these Philistines? So he sees this people that are in distress and his people tell him, the people of Kilah, they're in distress and they're being plundered by the Philistines who, oh yeah, by the way, happen to be our enemies too. And David, that famous Philistine that you killed, Goliath, this is his people. And so David inquires of the Lord and the Lord says to David, go and attack the Philistines and save Kilah. Now, here's the thing. The people of Kilah were not under the domain of really Saul's kingdom. He wasn't obligated because they were Israelites in some way. But what happens is God's people, particularly David's army, brings to David a need in front of him. And he says, these people are being plundered and ruined. That you could perhaps be God's answer to the injustice that we see in this moment. Therefore, go and defend them. And so David seeks the Lord and the Lord says, go and attack the Philistines and save them. But verse three, but David's men, after David returning, says to them, behold, we are afraid here in Judah. How much more then if we go to Kilah against the armies of the Philistines? So a couple of things have just happened. God's people and others have told David that there was a problem in this city that the Philistines were there. 
And so David does what a mature spiritual leader does. He doesn't just gather his armies and go off to battle. No, he does the thing that we haven't seen Saul do in other instances. He goes and he asks the Lord and he asks him, is this what you would have us do? Would, would we have your favor and your blessing if we went and defended these people and attacked the Philistines? And so he goes, and the Lord's answer is yes, go and do those things. And so he goes and tells his men, hey, listen, we're going to fight the Philistines. The Lord has said go. And we've seen him countless times say go. And he has delivered us from the hands of the enemies. And all of a sudden, David's men were like, hey, listen, we're already pretty fearful here where we are. Our circumstance is one that, that we're not in a good position mentally and physically. We're not in a great position militarily. How can we, in our own time of need, being sought after by the most powerful king in the land, how can we go and help these people? Our circumstances are not ideal. In fact, they're terrible. We are not in a position to go and to defend these people. Verse 4 picks up and he says, then David goes back to the Lord. He inquires of the Lord again. I asked him the first time. God said, go. I hear you. I'm meeting you where you're at. David inquires of the Lord again. The Lord answers him, says the same thing. Arise, go down to Kila, for I will give the Philistines into your hand. And so David and his men they go there, they fight the Philistines, and they brought away their livestock struck, stock, and struck them with a great blow. So David ends up saving the inhabitants of Kyla. A couple of things that I want us to see by point of application just out from the very beginning. Chapters 20, 21, and 22 found David in a pretty peculiar circumstance. He was in a really difficult situation, and one could be argued and contended with. David wasn't in a healthy place to go help anybody. And I think that's one of the first things that we sort of gather from chapter 23 is here in this moment is simply this. As a people, we must not ever let our circumstances blind us to the needs of other people. Can I tell you this morning that you will never have ideal or perfect circumstances in your life? There will always be something in your life, whether you're uh, overcoming adversity or there is turmoil or there is relational conflict, whether it be at home or whether it be at the workplace or whether it be at church, our situations in life and circumstances are never ideal. They're never perfect. In fact, the people that often find themselves in, in places where they're regularly helping people and making impacts with people, if you get to know them, you will learn very quickly of the adversity and the difficulty in their own circumstances that they have, yet they don't let it get in the way and become a barrier to helping other people. And David had... His life not just threatened by the king, but spears thrown at him and men hunting him down like an animal and a dog, found him hiding in caves away from things. These were not ideal circumstances. In fact, they were the worst of all circumstances. We read through the, the Psalms, we, we see this sort of come out on display in David and about how he was just this sort of emotional roller coaster, was he not? 
In one moment, you can have David saying, I praise you, God, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. I take refuge in you. You've delivered me from my enemies. And in the very next psalm, you'll hear him say things like, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me and forgotten me and abandoned me? And you're like, wait a minute, David, what happened from chapter 49 to chapter 50? Why do we seem to go in this roller coaster? And yet he was a man that was considered a man after God's own heart. He, he understood these things. His circumstances were never ideal. And can I just say to us as a church that if you're waiting on your circumstances to get better, before you begin in, in a posture of service, before you begin to meet the needs in other people's lives, can I just tell you that that circumstance may not ever change for the rest of your life. But it may not ever get better or, or easier. I remember when I was going to seminary and I would hear seminary students say foolish things like this, I'll serve the church when I get out of seminary. When I have time and I'm, I'm committed to my studies at this point, which is a noble thing and the very thing that you're called to do, but at no point are we allowed to sort of opt out of a life of service. There's not a circumstance in, in this realm or in this moment for David's life that, that he would say that, that I'm going to let this sort of dictate whether or not I'm going to go help these people or not. If the Lord said go help them, David said I'll, I'll go help them. But I want you to notice that in this moment, it's not David doing the leading to help these people. I think sometimes in, in a sort of our eagerness and even our passion, we want to go help people, but the Lord hadn't told us to help. As a minister, I experience this on a regular basis where, where the needs in this city, the needs in this church are, are endless. And there's always opportunities for, for service, but, but it's not always that God has called us to do those particular things and because it might stretch us too thin or, or it might squeeze the life out of us too much where, where we sort of thin ourselves out. Not everything that we're going to see and every need that's before us is a need that we can actually meet. But the trick here is in this moment is that David goes and he seeks the Lord and the Lord is the one that tells him to go. And so he goes. If you look towards the end of verse 5, it makes this sort of peculiar statement that I've never noticed before in studying this book for a really long time. It says that David was able to save the people of Kila, but it also says David was able to save the livestock. And the first time I read over that this week, I thought that's not really that important of a detail. But then you start to think about the idea that God tells David to go to Kyla, save the people and deliver them from the hands of the Philistines. And it just so happens as David walks in obedience before the Lord, God not only allows him to save the people, but also the livestock. And what that means is, is that when you walk in obedience and in faithfulness to what God has called you to do, nine times out of 10, he delivers you and he gives you what you asked for. But in this moment, he gives you beyond what it is that you could expect. And he gave David beyond what it is that David could expect. He was just hoping to see the people delivered from the hands of the Philistines. And instead, he delivers them from the hands of the Philistines and God gives him a little bit more on top. And he receives it because he walks in obedience and he walks in faithfulness. The second thing, that I want you to see in this, these five verses is that we not only never let our circumstances blind us to the need of others, but we never let our circumstances cause us to listen to the wrong counsel. Listen to me carefully. 
If there's one linchpin on which this entire text sort of rests on, I think it's within this little interchange right here where David goes to the Lord the first time and the Lord says, go. And then he goes to his men and he tells his men what they're going to do. And they're like, David, I'm not so sure this is what we're supposed to do. Now, listen to me. These were David's most loyal followers. These were his soldiers who he bled with and and he sweat with. These were people that he engaged in battle. This was the brotherhood in which he existed in. Men that had shown themselves to be loyal to David and good people with great intentions. And David listens to him and he he says, okay, I get that you're not sure, so here's what I'll do. I'm not going to put your advice up against the direct word that I've got from the Lord. Instead, what I'll do in this moment, I'm going to go back to the Lord. It's almost like he's saying, listen, I love you and, and I, I accept where you are. I understand your logic, but, but I can't get past this idea that the Lord just said go. And the Lord told us to go down there and, and, and do this. And so here's what I'll do. I'm going to go back to the Lord. I'm going to listen to you and say, listen, this is where you're at, but I'm going to go back to the Lord and I'm going to ask him again just to be clear one more time to make sure that we don't step to the left or to the right, that we don't get ahead of the Lord or behind the Lord, to make sure that I heard the Lord clearly. And so he goes to the Lord and the Lord responds the exact same way. You know, you can get a lot of wrong counsel in this life from really good God-fearing people. You can get a lot of really bad counsel from people that go to church. You can get a a lot of bad counsel from people that, that know the word but are not necessarily living according to the word that are not following the word. They know the answers and and the Sunday school books and they've gone through the quarterlies and they're active in small groups, but they're not walking with God in such a way that they can be really good in their intentions about things, but but their intentions and their well-meaning advice that can contradict what God has said and what God has told. I think David teaches us something profound in this moment that I think should be true of any God-fearing Christian, but in particular should be true of of what we would just sort of quantify as, as true spiritual leaders. And I mean men and women that are like genuinely seeking the Lord in their life and God's will for their life. They, they genuinely don't just say they want to glorify God, but like genuinely mean that. And they're asking God, like, Lord, help me today, not get out of step with your will and help me follow you. One of the things that we see from David in this moment is that true spiritual leaders are those who motivate and are not motivated by charisma or manipulation or abuse, but rather through the plainly stated word of God. They want the word to lead them. And the mark of a, of a mature member in a church, of a growing church, a, a godly church that is pursuing Christ, is they are not fooled and tricked by charisma in a pulpit 
or manipulation uh, in a class to grow or the, the latest uh, leadership development tactic or way to grow organizations and, and applying those. But, but maturity in Christ means I'm longing and wanting my leaders, men and women, to be men and women that are first and foremost men and women of the word, students of the word, being led by the word, full of his spirit. Not manipulating, not coercing, not tricking into, into service or, or to doing things, but, but genuinely saying, listen, I want to follow and I want to yield my life according to what the scriptures has said. And one of our core values is that we say it, we just want to be biblically faithful in what we're doing. We want to be, be, be biblical over being big. And if we are big, we want to maintain that biblical awareness and that fidelity to the word of God as God grows our church and he's growing our church. But we won't compromise who we are to get big. We're going to stay biblical the whole way. And we're not going to be motivated by charisma here or, or there and, and tactics that sort of uh, push people in a direction as if you can manufacture church growth. Friend, listen to me. I don't want to be a part of a church that does that. You give me enough money and a big enough budget, I'll have people here. I'll give away cars and Super Bowl tickets. I'll give away tickets to the, to the Mavs game, to the Cowboys games. I'll, I'll buy you VIP access. You just come and, and bring your friend. And you think I'm joking. There are churches that do things like that. You give me enough and, and I'll get them here. But that's not our goal. Our goal is not to be this huge church. Our goal is to simply just be a faithful church that is following God and yielding to the word of God. And as God brings the growth and adds the growth, we manage it not with tactics and, and organizational plans, though we have tactics and organizational plans. We manage it according to the, to the word. And as we get bigger, here's the trick, we get smaller. The bigger we grow in, in appearance, the smaller we actually grow in our circles and in our community and in our small groups. And the more circles and the more groups that we create, as we get bigger, we actually intend to grow smaller. And dicing and slicing and reproducing and creating new teachers and units and whether it's Sunday morning or it's community groups in the homes, that that, that is our intention. But spiritual leaders are those who motivate by the plainly spoken word of God. One of my favorite authors is a guy by the name of Sinclair Ferguson. Sinclair and probably Martin Lloyd-Jones are probably two of, of the gentlemen, one's obviously dead, live, but uh, have influenced me in ministry-wise, philosophy of ministry, preaching, teaching, doctrine, all across the board in a lot of different ways. And Sinclair Ferguson has this book just called Discovering God's Will. And it applies back to this question that David was wrestling with, should I go or should I not go? Should I go down and help save these people or should I not? His men, his loyal followers were saying, don't do it. David was saying, but the Lord has told us that. And so what Sinclair does is not necessarily writing about David, but he answers that question that David was facing. Like, what is God's will for my life? Like, how do I know that this is what I'm supposed to do or this is what I'm supposed to do? These are questions that we face all the time as human beings. And they can be real large things or they can be really small things. And Ferguson says a couple of things about discerning or discovering God's will. He says, first and foremost, when we're faced with a choice, 
We first ask, what does the Bible prohibit or what does he command? So listen to me carefully. This seems like a no-brainer. But having been in ministry now for 17, 18 years, you'd be surprised several times a year, I end up in conversations with members in churches who've been walking faithfully with God. They will tell me that God has told them or called them to do something that is in direct contradiction to something God said, this is wrong and you shouldn't do it. It happens all the time. And the justifications become, well, it's my, my happiness, or my best friend told me this, or my other Christian friend told me this. But herein it lies the problem. It lies on the opposite side of God says you can't do this, but you're saying it's okay in your circumstance. And what Ferguson is saying in this moment is when we're faced with a choice, we first go to the word and we say, does scripture prohibit this, or does it command us to do that? And if it prohibits it, then I can promise you with 100% certainty, it is not in God's will for you to do it. End of discussion, close the book, sermon's done, let's go home. That's it. So does it prohibit, does it command? Number two, he says the next question we then ask is which options are wise and beneficial according to biblical principles? Which options are wise and beneficial according to biblical principles? Now, Ferguson didn't say this in his book, but I'll say it this way. You can have things that are beneficial to a person, but they're not wise. They're not wise choices. But you can make wise choices, and the wise choices will always be beneficial to you. It can be beneficial in the sense that it might be a way that you're to go, but it may not be the best approach or the wisest approach. And it could be whether or not, like David said, do I go and defend them or do I don't? Do I resolve this conflict with this person or not? Do I confront this issue or do I let it go? Do I say this or not say this? Do this or do that? In whatever circumstance that is, what options are wise and beneficial according to what the word says? Everything that is wise is not always beneficial, but not everything that is beneficial is always going to be the wisest. Ferguson goes on and he says the third thing that we do is we simply ask the question, what effect will this decision have on others? So after we identify the scripture prohibited, after we identify what's the, the wisest approach, we then ask the question, what kind of effect is this going to have on other people? Is it going to affect them in a way that demonstrates that I, I love them as Christ has loved me? Does it show responsibility towards that person or, or does it compete with, with an issue or a circumstance that is there? What effect is it going to have? And then lastly, Ferguson says this, if is there a, an example or an illustration in the Bible that compares to the proposed action? Do I see God working redemptively in his scripture, like in this way, in, a, in another instance? Is there an example in, in doing that? And I want you to notice what happens after David goes back to the Lord the second time and he seeks the Lord. And then noticeably when he comes back and the Lord says go, 
And so it says David and his men immediately in verse five. So he, the, the Lord's promise is in verse four. I will give the Philistines into your hand. Verse five, no time wasted. David picks up his stuff. He grabs his men and they go. And David and his men went into Kila. They fought the Philistines and they brought away the livestock, had the blessing on top of the obedience. And they struck the Philistines with a great blow. And David saved them. So when David sought the Lord through his word, and sought counsel and he sought wisdom through his word. He brought confidence in his men and he also unified the men. They just pick up in verse five and they just go. And so why that's instructive for us is because when we as a people pursue God's word together, we bring confidence and we bring unity in his church and attached to that many times is the personal blessing that comes. He gives him the livestock. He unifies his men. He brings confidence in them. The Lord has spoken these things to us. Now let us go and let us take them and let us defend them. And what this is, is this is the Lord in this moment that he's giving David the gift of his presence attached to his promises. A lot of times we want the promises of God without the presence. And what I mean by that is that we want the promises of God if and only if I can do it my own way. I want the promises of, of the livestock. I want the promises of the, of the victory, but I'm going to do it the way that I want to do it without his presence in my life. And, and what we have to understand as a people that if we're going to lean into the, the promises of God and long for the promises of God, we cannot receive the promise of God in absence of his presence. And how do I get his presence in my life? I cling tightly to his word and I hold on to it. And I study it and I learn it and I remember it and I meditate on it. I don't get God apart from what God has spoken. And so David goes and he inquires of the Lord and God says, go. And he tells him twice, second time, a little bit more gentle. David gets up, he immediately obeys. And God blesses. There's something interesting that happens at the end of verse five as the text transitions into six. And I don't want us to, to miss this, though I know our time is, is fading. And so in verse six, this dude named Abitar, the son of Ahimelech, had fled to David earlier. And we would have read that in an earlier chapter if we would have read over it. And he goes to David and it says that he came down to David with an ephod in his hand. And what an ephod is, it's like this garment that has this pocket in it. And inside this pocket, the priest would wear it, and they had these two stones. And it was a way that in the Old Testament, God had permitted his people to discern his will. And so what God would say was, listen, you go to the priest, and you would ask the question before the priest, and he would stick his hand in the ephod, and he would pull out two rocks. Now, on each side of the rock uh, was written the same, uh, on one side was written the word Urimen, and the other side Thumen. And Urim, excuse me, Urim, Urim meant curse, U-R-I-M. But Thumen, on the, on the other side, it meant to be perfect. And so what the priest would do is they would ask the question to the priest, and he pulled out the rock, and both rocks face up had the Urim, Urim word on it, curse. The answer then was no to whatever the question was. 
But if he pulled out the rocks and, and both sides of the rocks were showing Thuman, um, it is perfect. And the answer was yes. So, so listen, to be honest with you today, this sort of reeks of a little bit of like sorcery and witchcraft, right? Uh, this reeks of sort of like almost like a tarot-ish kind of like stance that the Lord would allow. And for whatever reason in his sovereignty, I'll ask him when we get to heaven, like, why would you do that? It's just kind of weird, right? Like, this is what he permitted for this amount of time. And here's what I want to tell you this morning. That is not permitted today to discern God's will in that way. And here's the reason why. A lot has changed since David's time and them consulting and asking for the, for the will of God compared to now. And if you don't know what that is, let me just tell you for just a second and I'll be done. This little thing happened in the book of Acts called Pentecost. Kind of a big deal. It's where God had been promising for all these years to send his spirit to indwell in the life of the believers. And that God would fill you and me with his spirit as we cling to the word tightly, that we get the promise of God in his, in his spirit. And, and oh, by the way, also since then of David's time, God gave us this, 66 books, that we can discern everything that we need to know for our welfare and to flourish as human beings is found in this book. But I don't need to flip over rocks or draw straws, or go see a psychic to, to read my future because everything that I need is sufficiently found in here. And oh, by the way, at salvation, I get the gift of the Spirit, God himself indwelling in me. He would speak to me and he would discern to me and tell me what I need. So I don't need rocks and I don't need sticks and I don't need to cast lots and pick the smallest toothpick out of the hand and foresee the future in that way. But thirdly, here's what else God gave us. After we seek the presence of the Lord and the Spirit of God in our life, and we seek the presence of the Lord found in his word, here's what else God gives us. He gives us brothers and sisters who walk in arms with us, who are equally filled with the Spirit of God, equally filled with the same knowledge and access to the same book and the same information that changes and transforms, each equally walking and pursuing God. And here's what we get to ask them. Hey, listen, I've got this thing in my life and I'm trying to discern God's will for my life. And God's word, I think, says this for me and I'm struggling with this. You know me well enough. I trust that you're walking with God today. What do you see in my life that I, that I need to do? And then you let the Spirit of God speak through them. And, and, and here's the reality. When you're in a church as broad as this, with the generations of this and the walks of life from this, listen, God is also, I believe, as long as that church is walking with God, he's not going to call you to do something that is in contradiction to, to the will, if you will, of what the church would then see or your small group would then see in your life. Very rarely does that happen outside the exception of that. But historically, if you study church history, God uses the people to discern those things. He uses the church to identify the elders and to call out the deacons. It's a group of people seeing congregationally and identifying those things. And so we, as a people, we don't need to turn over rocks and, and draw lots. But then this is crazy what happens, and I'll just summarize this, but, but as verses 7 and all the way down through 13 that happened, basically just what happens in this moment is Saul gets word that David's delivered the people of Kilah. The people uh, take Saul's side 
And they conspire to turn David over to Saul, the deliverer who just delivered them from the Philistines. They have just decided to betray David and to give him to Saul. And so this priest shows up and he comes and, and he draws the ephod and he's like, David, you, should you go or leave? And it clearly, uh, divinely, God says, you need to leave. And so David takes his 600 men, they arise and, and, they, and they leave. And, and it says, when Saul was told at the very end in verse 13 that David had escaped from Kilah, he gave up the expedition. Can you imagine the sense of betrayal that David felt in that moment? That the very people that he delivered that owed their life and their livelihood to were the very people that just turned him over back into the evil king. And so David goes. We read his Psalms to see his emotional state as he processes these things. Hebrew scholars are sure that once David was delivered from all of his enemies and he was sort of at peace, reigning as, as king later on, he wrote Psalm 18. And, and just the first two verses of Psalm 18, I want to read to you in response to, to where David got brought back to, where he said this, I love you, O Lord, my strength. The Lord is my rock. He is my fortress. He's my deliverer, my God, my rock in whom I take refuge. This morning, I just end by asking you this question, where are you taking refuge in this morning? Some of you, it could be relationships you shouldn't be in. Some of you, it's expectations that you, you've put on yourself that are just unrealistic. You need to cut yourself some slack. For some of you, you're taking refuge and coping with anxiety and depression in some ways as COVID's ramped up. You're looking at things you shouldn't look at. You're compulsively buying things you shouldn't buy. You're, you're managing your stress and emotions and taking refuge in those things when what the Lord is saying, like David, take refuge in me. I'll help you cope. I'll help you deal, but come to me first. This morning, we end with a time of response and just ask and plead with you to put your hope and your trust in our God who is a rock and a defender and who is a great refuge. Would you pray with me? Father in heaven, we ask that you would help us today in Christ put our trust in you and to believe in you, not for our name's sake, but Lord, for yours. Would you help us have faith? Would you overcome our unbelief? Would you save us from our sins? We ask these things in Christ's name and God's people said, amen. I started off talking about bees. I want to end talking about bees because it relates to the text this morning. So there's a statement that you're all familiar with, the queen bee. You ever heard that? In my house, we've affectionately labeled Haley, my beautiful wife, as the queen bee of the Erickson household. She gets whatever she wants, whenever she wants, most of the time. But the idea of the queen bee is the queen bee rules the roost, right? That's the idea behind that. Well, here's a fact in, in bee colonies that you maybe didn't know. The queen is not actually the one in charge of the colony. She gets labeled because she's bigger than everybody. She's a little bit more powerful than everybody. And, and she can do a lot of other things that most of the other bees in the colony can't, but the queen is not the one in charge. The actual bees that are in charge in a colony are the actual worker bees. 
name being they, they outnumber everyone anyway, but they do most of the work. And those worker bees, if, if that queen bee doesn't do what she's supposed to do and lay eggs and she gets, or she gets old and she gets tired and is not producing in a way that she should, those worker bees will have her lay another queen cell and then they'll kill that queen bee to raise up another queen bee, not because they hate the queen bee, but because they love the colony more. And it has been ingrained in their genetic code by the Lord Almighty that they would think that way and act that way and behave that way because it's, they're acting in such a way that their singular one B is not the most important thing to the colony, but everyone. It's the person in need. And so this morning, I wanna remind us gently and lovingly that I'm not the most important B in this colony, nor are your elders, nor are you or the person to your right, to the left, but it's the church as a whole. It's Christ making much of him and allowing us to be used by him to meet the needs of the other people in the colony, the people in our city, the people in our state. That's what we're here for, to see people far from God come to know Christ, is it not? If it doesn't reflect that and point to that, I don't want it. I don't want to do it. I don't want to spend a second thinking about it if it doesn't help us see people that don't know Christ come to know him for the first time. It's what I want to give my life to. It's what I'm asking you today to give your life to into this mission.